we are halfway through a series on the book of Ecclesiastes, unusually called the Pessimist's Guide to the Universe. Ecclesiastes is very much like the book of Job in your Bible. It's for anyone who has ever asked God that soul-searching, heart-wrenching question, why? And that's why Ecclesiastes feels so sad sometimes, as though it truly was written by a pessimist. A pessimist is a person who sees the negative side of every situation, somebody who believes that the world just naturally bends toward evil and pain. And we've all heard the expressions and made the jokes, an optimist sees the glass as half full and the pessimist sees the glass as half empty. But a lot of pessimists would protest and say, you know what, I'm not a pessimist, I'm a realist because I've lived a while and life often does hand us negative situations. And the world is filled with evil and pain. And there often is good reason to be gloomy or sad. Now, King Solomon, who wrote this book, he was the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived. But now he's old and he's disillusioned by life itself. He has spent a lifetime buying anything he desired and trying everything he could imagine. But his heart is still empty. And to describe how he feels, he uses a Hebrew word, hevel. He uses it 38 times in just 12 chapters. The King James Version translates that into the English word vanity. Many modern translations translate that into the word meaningless. But in doing so, they all slightly diminish this Hebrew metaphor because hevel doesn't necessarily mean vain or meaningless. It actually means vapor or fog or smoke. So this is what's important. We're not quarreling with the translations. We're just saying that while they're right, they're probably a little incomplete. Solomon isn't saying life has no meaning, that it's meaningless. He's saying that the meaning of life is never clear. And that's what's so frustrating and so depressing sometimes. It's never clear. It's, it's like smoke. It's like fog. It's like steam or vapor. It's undefinable. It's filled with all kinds of confusing things. It's unreliable. It, it looks solid, but you go to grab hold of something and it slips through your fingers and it's gone. It's unpredictable like smoke blowing in a breeze. It takes one shape and before you know it, you're in a whole different situation. It's uncertain. Sometimes it just all blows away for no reason and you're left with nothing. It's like fog, it's like smoke, it's like vapor. If you're in the middle of it, it's impossible to see clearly. And Solomon even says it's like chasing the wind. You never really feel like you get there, you catch up. And so he, he says this over and over, hevel. All of life is hevel. It is smoke and fog and vapor. Now Solomon is the king who dedicated and built the glorious temple in Jerusalem, he remembers it well. Who could forget it? In the Feast of Tabernacles, that celebration, the dedication of the temple, they offered 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. 
Those were the sacrifices as they celebrated the Feast of Tabernacles and dedicated the temple that Solomon built. He remembers praying over his nation from up on top of brass scaffolding. And he definitely remembers the two times during that dedication ceremony when the glory of God filled that Old Testament temple to such an extent that the priests had to just take a time out and stop ministering because the people, Old Testament people, were basking, caught away in the presence of God. I cannot tell you more emphatically than this, that if that could happen in the Old Testament, it most certainly should happen all the time in the New Testament when people filled with the presence of God get in the collective presence of God's people and God's presence. That should happen a lot. We shouldn't have to be drilled or pumped or primed or prodded to do that. There should be a response in us that when we hear the word, when we hear the lyrics of a meaningful song, when we feel the presence of God, when we're praying, there should be something in us that just reaches out. If that could happen in the Old Testament with no Holy Ghost poured out and with no baptism in Jesus' name and with no Calvary and with no blood shed by a perfect lamb if it was just all symbols and ceremonies and types and shadows and the presence of God could fill that temple to an extent like that how much more should we be able to lift up our hands and our voices and our praise and our hearts and let God move in our midst and Solomon remembers all that and he most definitely remembers the message that the Lord gave him personally that very same night if my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray. Somebody shout pray. pray. And seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. That was a different time in Solomon's life. Now, like so many backsliders, although Solomon is no longer doing what he should do, he has never stopped knowing what he should do. Most backsliders are exactly like that. They might not be doing what they should do, but they've never stopped knowing what they should do. Solomon, over the years of his life, he's very old and disillusioned now. He's seen a lot of empty-headed people do a lot of empty-hearted things in God's house over the years. And like most backsliders who really know what they should be doing, Solomon doesn't mind setting all the rest of us straight. And so he talks about going to the house of God, even though he's not so faithful himself. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God. And be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools. For they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God. For God is in heaven and you're here on earth. Therefore let thy words be few. For a dream cometh through a multitude of business and a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. What are you saying, Solomon? I'm saying watch your step when you go to God's house. Be reverent and be respectful. And yes, 
I know the church is not a building in the New Testament, but we should still be reverent and respectful and honor the place that we have dedicated to the Lord. Solomon says, when you go to church, be more ready to hear than to speak. Why? Because faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. When I come to the house of God, I'm not just listening to the sermon for a word from God. I'm listening to every song for a word from God. There are moments standing in this sanctuary where one line of a song has penetrated a circumstance, has just kind of overturned a situation and my faith has been lifted and my heart has been inspired and I I got a word from the Lord, not from the preacher, but from the praise team while they were up here worshiping. There have been times that I got a word from the Lord while we were praying because we're in the presence of the Lord. So when you go to the house of the Lord, he that hath an, oh my goodness, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is speaking to the church. I know you got two physical ears, but you've got a spiritual ear. And if you'll listen to the voice of God, if you'll be more ready to hear than to just speak and offer your own opinion, God has a word for you. I'd be so bold as to say that God has a word for somebody right in midweek Bible study tonight. If you'll listen with the ear of the Spirit, you will hear it. Solomon calls out this thing that he calls the sacrifice of fools. He said, you be ready to hear. Be listening for a word from God. And don't just offer the sacrifice of fools. These are people who appear to be religious. And they act very zealous for a while. But he says, they consider not that they do evil. What Solomon just said is something we've said. They talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. They hide their sinful thoughts and actions. And then they go to the house of God and pretend that all is okay. They've turned going to the house of God into some religious ceremony to soothe their conscience and impress their neighbors when all the time what coming to the house of God is for is none of that. What coming to the house of God is for is to hear a word from the Lord. Solomon lets us know only a fool thinks that they can deceive God. They're offering the sacrifice of fools. God sees right through what they're doing. King Saul, one of Solomon's predecessors, he learned this lesson the hard way. He lost his life and he lost his kingdom because he didn't get this principle. The prophet Samuel said to him, to obey is better than sacrifice. It's wonderful to worship. But you know the greatest form of worship to God is obedience to God. The very first time the word worship ever appears in the scripture is old father Abraham taking his boy Isaac up the mountain. And the very first time you see the word worship in the scripture, Abraham has a knife in his hand. He's about ready to offer to God the thing that he loves the most. Now that is worship. When you obey God and you don't even feel like it. When you obey God and you don't even understand what he's asking. When you obey obey God and it doesn't suit your fancy and it doesn't make you happy but you just say God I'm here for the long haul that's worship 
That's worship. You see, Solomon advises us, let your words be few because a fool's voice is known by the multitude of words. The apostle James, thousands of years later, he, he would say it, uh, a thousand years later, he would say, you show me your faith without your works. I choose to show you my faith by my works. So I'm not gonna offer the sacrifice of fools. I'm not just gonna try to look right. I'm not just gonna try to put on a show and act right. I'm going to be right before God because more than I need my daily bread physically, I need my daily bread spiritually. I tell you again, I emphasize it. I kind of pound into this right now. There is a word from God for you today. You don't have to wait once a month or once every six months to get a word from God. God wants to speak to you today. Chapter five, verse four, Solomon says, when you vow a vow unto God, Defer not to pay it. Don't delay it. Delayed obedience is disobedience. For God has no pleasure in fools. Pay that which thou hast vowed. And I, I heard this growing up all the time. Better is it that thou shouldest not vow than that thou shouldest vow and not pay. Now in the Old Testament, there were ceremonial vows. We know that. But the principle transfers very easily into the New Testament. People make empty promises to God all the time because people love to live in a religious dream world where they think that words are equivalent to deeds. But brothers and sisters, what you say is not equivalent to what you do. Not in everyday life and not in your spiritual life. See, some people, they just enjoy the good feeling that comes when they make a temporary commitment. They really enjoy it when they see that other people are finding out about their temporary commitment. They really enjoy that. Sometimes they even help other people find out about their temporary commitment by posting it on social media. It's wonderful. What a world we live in. But Jesus told us in his Sermon on the Mount, you do your giving and you do your praying, and you do your fasting in secret. Why? Because that removes the temptation of you going through life trying to impress other people with your religiosity, and it allows you to simply be sincere and genuine before the Lord. So, should we make promises to God? Oh yes, most definitely. But if you're going to say it, then follow through and do it. Or as King Solomon says in verse 6, suffer not thy mouth to cause thy flesh to sin. You can get in trouble by what you say, especially if you're always making empty promises. I want God to search my heart. I want God to search my inward parts. I don't have a desire and the longer life goes on, the longer the world goes on and seems to spiral out of control. You get this feeling, don't you? That uh, Jesus could come back at any moment and heaven is surely gonna be worth it. And uh, I, I don't wanna put on airs. I don't wanna try to impress anybody. I'm more interested in what Jesus thinks of me than what anybody here thinks of me. I want my heart to be open and pure and clean before him. 
Search my heart. It's your approval that I long for, Jesus. Would you lift up your hands for a second and we'll carry on, but just let your voice out for a minute. Search me, oh God. Know me, Jesus. Cleanse me, God. See if there be any wicked way in me. Order my steps in your word and let no iniquity have dominion over me. Oh, I wish somebody lift up your voice and pray. For somebody, this might be the word that God's trying to speak to you tonight. If you just push that just a little bit, I, I, I like the Pentecostal percolator too, but, but just more than just that rumble or that mumble, just push just a little bit. Oh, yes, Jesus. The word flows in an atmosphere like that. The spirit moves in an atmosphere like that. Healing and deliverance and victory, they, they just pour out in an atmosphere like that when God's people are not content to just sit and listen, but they want that presence of God to fill the temple. Fill this temple, Jesus. Oh my, I love you, Jesus. Solomon moves on to one of his favorite subjects. He talks about it a lot. He says, he that loveth silver shall not be satisfied with silver, nor he that loveth abundance, he won't be satisfied with increase. This is also vanity. When goods increase, they are increased that eat them. And what good is there to the owners thereof, saving the beholding of them with their eyes? The owners of the goods simply have to watch other people consume the goods if they have them. In Proverbs and in Ecclesiastes, the wisest and wealthiest man who ever lived spends a lot of time talking about money. And his, his message is different than what you would expect you know, you'd think his message would be a little different if he's the wealthiest man who ever lived. But his main message is that wealth is really just hevel. It is fog and smoke and vapor. Money can't solve every problem. And sometimes wealth actually creates more problems. Wealth doesn't bring la lasting satisfaction. And sometimes Money actually contributes to growing discontentment. Money does not bring peace of mind, brothers and sisters. And sometimes, the more you have, the more anxiety you feel. Money can't provide real security. And sometimes, your wealth, your standard of living actually breeds a lot of insecurity. It is good to have the things that money can buy but not at the expense of the things that money cannot buy. Let me back that truck up again. It is good to have the things that money can buy. The Bible's not against you having possessions. In fact, God blesses us with many wonderful things, both spiritually and physically. It's good to have the things money can buy, but not if we lose the things that money cannot buy. And so Solomon bears down on this subject of money. He has before, and he'll do it again. He says, the sleep of a laboring man 
is sweet, whether he eats little or much. But the abundance of the rich will not suffer him to sleep. There is a sore evil which I have seen under the sun, namely this, riches kept for the owners thereof to their hurt. There is something to be said, Solomon says, for doing an honest day's work, for providing for your family. There's something to be said for that. There's something to be said for helping out your friends and contributing to your community and contributing to the work of God. That's a wonderful life. Solomon actually says here, working people usually sleep quite well, whether they have little or much, because they're content with their life. And so they sleep well. But wealthy people, and Solomon would know, he said they often have anxiety and insomnia. They can't rest well. Why? Because now they have to worry about maintaining and storing and repairing and insuring and preserving and upgrading all the stuff that they own. Hoarding riches may very well be hazardous to your physical health but it's definitely dangerous to your spiritual health. See, Solomon says, you know, when you have riches, in that previous verse, he said, you know, when goods increased, you just got a lot more people coming after them. If you've got wealth, somebody's gonna ask you for it. If you've got a nice home, somebody's gonna wanna stay in it. If you've got food in your fridge, somebody's gonna wanna eat it. And all the parents said, amen. It just happens. Solomon's not after you for enjoying the things that you own. In fact, he says this, behold that which I have seen, it is good and comely for one to eat and drink and to enjoy the good of all his labor that he takes under the sun all the days of his life. God gave it that to him, for it is his portion. Everyone say portion. Every man also to whom God hath given riches and wealth and hath given him power to eat thereof and to take his portion, everyone say portion, and to rejoice in his labor. This is the gift of God. God's not against you having a good life. For he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Now Solomon has said this before. Three times in this book already he's told us, enjoy the life God gave you. He's already given us that advice three times. He will repeat it at least three more times before the book is over. So he says very plainly, enjoy your life. Enjoy your meals. Enjoy your work. Enjoy your family. Enjoy your home. Enjoy your possessions. Enjoy your church. Enjoy each other. Solomon says, this is the gift of God. God gave me my life. I don't just mean that when I was born, he gave me the breath of life for which I am thankful. I mean that everything that I have that is good in my life came to me from the hand of God. If you think I entertain even for a second that I wouldn't thank God for my life, you got another thought coming. Every good and perfect gift comes down from above. It comes down from the Father of lights in whom there is no shadow of turning. He never changes. I'm changeable. I'm quite fickle and frail and sometimes 
nearly faithless, I think. I, I just, I, I stumble and bumble my way through different things in life. And sometimes I look in the mirror and I think, Raymond, you're not doing a very good job at this. But my God has never flinched. He has never changed. There's never been a time I've asked him for anything that he hasn't heard that prayer. No, he doesn't always give me what I want. But I've often looked back down the road and I've looked in the rear view mirror and I've figured out later I'm not real smart and I'm not at the end of my life but I've had enough living to look back down the road and see some places where if I had got what I asked God for my life would have been a disaster but I am so thankful not only for his giving hand but sometimes for his taking hand he removes things he he doesn't give things he withholds things not for our pain but for our good it's because he's so faithful those of you that are parents in this room so many of you you know this often your little children who don't understand, they want something and you, you big meanie, you won't give it to them. And the reason you won't give it to them is because they don't understand. They don't have the perspective that you have. They don't know that if all they eat is sugar treats for every meal, that they're going to have health problems and tooth decay. They don't know that they can't put that precious tiny little finger in that socket. So you protect them or you tell them no. They don't know that they can't reach up and put a hand on a burner of a hot stove. So sometimes you get a little agitated and you, you say no and you mean it. And you're doing it because you have perfect knowledge compared to them. And that's our heavenly father. He's never done, oh my goodness. He's never done anything to hurt you or harm you. Everything that is in your life, it has to pass through his hand. And he would not do it to you. He would not allow it in your life if he didn't have a higher, greater purpose. My, 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 my. A lot of times that purpose is you're going to get further down your road of life and you're going to look back and you're going to say, somebody give me a chance. I've got a testimony of what my God has done for me. I've got a testimony of how he led me through valleys and rivers and mountains and trials and dark nights of the soul. I've got a testimony. Why? Because I trusted my heavenly father that he was a good, good father. I'm sorry, I wish you'd just worship him again for a minute. I don't like teaching Bible study in a vacuum, but it sure feels good when we honor the presence of the Lord. And he's so real here tonight. I love you, Jesus. I worship you, God. I worship you, God. Solomon says, your life, everything you have, everything you are, it is a gift from God. It is your portion. Everyone say, portion. And that is the Hebrew word halek. And it, it, it was used, portion, as you would expect, when they divided up the nation. It was used to describe an allotment of territory or a parcel of ground. It's a portion. But it can also refer to the sharing of something, like a, a portion of food. Or it can refer to a reward, the portion of the spoils. Or it could even refer to someone's fate. That is their portion. That happened to them and God allowed it. So that's their portion. 
So in other words, what Solomon's trying to say, he's not really talking about dividing up territory. He's saying that whatever situations God allows in your life, whatever life may hand you, whatever portion you are given, find the silver lining in those clouds and in the middle of your dark night, enjoy everything you possibly can. Don't let the Lord find you ungrateful for all he has done. But secondly, don't let the devil find you somewhere speaking against God. And I don't understand why God did this. And I don't understand why God did that. You pray and talk to God about that, but don't charge God foolishly. That's what Job was in danger of doing. And the Bible says he did not charge God foolishly. But I was reading um, yesterday, I think, um, the Bible says in chapter one that Job went through all of that stuff. He lost everything he owned. And the Bible closes Job chapter one with saying, in all of this, Job did not charge God foolishly. But in chapter two, the devil was given permission to attack Job's body and his health. And even his wife, she was the only family member he had left. And she turned against him and she said, why don't you just curse God and die? And when that happened, it shook Job. In chapter two, as you come to the end of chapter two, it doesn't say the same thing. It says, in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. He didn't say anything out loud, but he was starting to waver in his confidence in God. He didn't say anything out loud, but he was starting to let doubt consume him and fear consume him. Every once in a while, you've got to do what David did. When he came back home from the battle and he found Ziklag, the city where their wives and children and homes and families were stationed, he and his men came back and everything was burned to the ground. And for a few moments, even his loyal men spoke about the possibility of stoning their beloved leader, David. And you know what David did? He didn't despair. He didn't run. He didn't throw up his hands and he didn't complain foolishly against the Lord. The Bible says he encouraged himself in the Lord. That's why prayer is important. That's why church is important. That's why worship is important. That's why a song every once in a while is important. That's why the word is important. Every once in a while, you just got to say, I don't like this. I'm not happy about this, but I am not going to despair. I am going to encourage myself in the Lord. That's why when the pastor or the preacher or the singer says, why don't we pause and worship the Lord? Oh my goodness, you need to jump in with both hands, both arms flailing, your whole body, soul, mind, and spirit and say, I'm going to take this moment and I'm going to encourage myself in the Lord. I don't know what tomorrow may hold, but I'm going to go into it encouraged in the Lord just in case. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, I love you, Jesus. Oh, I love you, Jesus. I love you, Jesus. Solomon, he's got a funny way of doing it, and he takes a long time to get to it. But he'll eventually get there. He's trying to teach us life is too short to be a pessimist. Life is too short to always be negative. He says in that last verse, verse 20, he said, for he shall not much remember the days of his life because God answereth him in the joy of his heart. Now, if I could paraphrase Solomon, 
Stop worrying about the amount of days in your life and start thinking about the amount of life in your days. That was way too profound for Bible study. There's a lot of people. When somebody dies and we have their memorial service, nobody gets up and says, well, they live for 17,350. Nobody counts the days. They count the moments. They, they remember those moments. And, and that's life. And so Solomon's trying to get us to enjoy the life that we have. He's trying to tell us what Nehemiah said. The joy of the Lord is your strength. So you may not be happy about everything today, but whatever you are happy about today, you need to draw strength from it. He's trying to tell us what Paul would later say to us. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Because as Solomon says, God answereth him in the joy of his heart. God meets us in our moments of joy when we're rejoicing in him. Now, he carries on. Solomon's kind of like a roller coaster. He says something real positive and uplifting, and then he plunges into despair again. He's struggling. Ecclesiastes chapter 6 begins this way. There is an evil which I have seen under the sun, and it is common among men. Oh, great. Here we go again. Solomon begins chapter six with these words, and he goes on to describe the all too typical story of a man who has worked hard and accumulated much, but then life happens. Hevel happens. Smoke and fog and vapor and confusion. It could be a personal crisis, could be a family tragedy, a business loss, economic downturn, something like that. Maybe a debilitating sickness, maybe even sudden death. But whatever the cause, Solomon tells us this all too typical story of a man who never gets to enjoy all that he had hoped for in his later years. Someone else comes along and receives the benefit of all his labor. It's unfair, it's sad, it's hard, but it's life. And that's why Solomon says it's, it's just an evil disease in verse 2. And he carries on. He doesn't stop there. He's really on a downer right now. If a man beget an hundred children and live many years so that the days of his years be many, he'd have to live a while to beget a hundred kids. The days of his years are many, and his soul be not filled with good, and also that he have no burial. That's a Hebrew kind of phrase. It's translated into English, but we don't quite get it. Also that he have no burial. I say that an untimely birth is better than he. Even worse than the man who lives many years and experiences many pleasures and has lots of descendants, this man's even worse. His soul is not filled with good, Solomon says. His life is full, but his heart is empty. He's looked after himself very well, but he hasn't invested in anybody else. And when Solomon says that he has no burial, he means that when he died, it's not that they didn't bury his body. In the Hebrew expression, it means that when he died, he had no burial. Nobody even mourned. Nobody even missed him. Nobody had anything positive to say. And the Jews in the Old Testament at this time, when a child was stillborn, they often would not give that child a name. They thought that 
if they didn't do that, it wouldn't be remembered and then the parent's sorrow would fade faster. That was their thinking. So in, in verse four, the very next verse, Solomon says, this man's name shall be covered in darkness. He's saying it'd be better for him if he had never been born. He sh- he'd have been better to be stillborn and be forgotten because his life doesn't matter to anybody but himself. If you listen closely as Solomon says these words, you can almost hear it. He's talking about himself. That I've had all this wealth and I've had all this fame, but it hasn't amounted to what I thought it would amount to. I wonder if anybody will even miss me when I'm gone. He says in verse seven, all the labor of man is for his mouth and yet the appetite is not filled. He's not just talking about hunger. He says, we work all of our lives to fill our stomachs and our schedules and our storage units and our social media feeds. We work all of our lives to do that. But all the time we're filling up everything. Our souls are going hungry. Solomon is actually preaching Jesus' parable right here. You remember the rich man and all his plans to build barns and tear down this and build this bigger? God said to him, thou fool, this night thy soul shall be required of thee. Then whose shall those things be which thou hast provided? And and Jesus said, that's how it is with the one that lays up treasure for himself, but he's not rich toward God. Solomon said it this way, we work to fill the appetites of our life. We want our popularity and our fame and our wealth and our privileges and our perks. And yet the appetite is not filled. The the soul is not filled. Jesus said this, Solomon probably could have preached this once he got into the book of Ecclesiastes. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and then All these things will be added unto you. The problem with most people is they try to add all these things without the kingdom of God. Jesus said this, sent this scripture verse to somebody today, a dear friend of mine. Take therefore no thought for the morrow. It's the scripture for all you worry warts. For the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Just worry about today. Say, what about tomorrow? When it gets here, it will be today. Just worry about today. Because you can't do anything about tomorrow. Yes, you can plan. Yes, you can look ahead. It's not talking about that. It's talking about that crushing, crippling anxiety that paralyzes us and keeps us from joy. And Jesus said this, sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. I got enough to deal with today. I don't need to be worrying about tomorrow. I'm gonna get through today trusting God, worshiping him, enjoying my life. And when tomorrow gets here, it'll be today and I'll do it all over again. One day at, never mind. It's not my gift. Solomon continues to speak of the tragedy of a vain life to make his point. His point is very simple. Stop worrying about tomorrow and start enjoying today. Now, chapter seven, and we're gonna kind of end up here in chapter seven tonight. In chapter 7, Solomon gives several striking contrasts. And he tells us that while our desires are sometimes good, God's design for our life is always better than our desires. 
So we have good ideas, but God has God ideas. We have things that are good, but God gives us things that are better. And so throughout this chapter, if you watch it, you'll see the word better, just like almost in the New Testament book of Hebrews. And so here's how Solomon starts. A good name is better. Everyone say better than precious ointment. And the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. What are you saying, Solomon? I'm saying, number one, a good reputation is better than expensive possessions, precious ointment, which would be very costly. If you've got a good name, that's better than anything you can own and anything you can buy. And then he says this, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth. You got a death wish, Solomon? No, it's not so much that. Because when I talk about those two dates, the day of your birth and the day of your death, when he puts them together, he's saying, the reason the day of your death is better is because when you're born, nobody knows how you're gonna turn out. But when you die, then you've either lived for God and your life has mattered or you've turned God away. So he's really talking about something that you've probably heard before. The American Senator Bob Dole he often quoted this poem when he spoke in speeches in his later years. He lived to be 98 years old. And when he, when he died, one of his executive assistants actually read this little poem at Bob Dole's funeral a few years back. And it's beautiful. I've, I've seen it before and read it before. It was written by a lady named Linda Ellis. And this is really what Solomon is saying when he says, the day of your death is better than the day of your birth because then we know what kind of life you lived. The poem is called The Dash. Maybe you've heard it. I read of a man who stood to speak at the funeral of a friend. He referred to the dates on the tombstone from the beginning to the end. He noted first came the date of birth and spoke the following date with tears. But he said what mattered most of all was the dash between those years. For that dash represents all the time that they spent alive on earth. And now only those who love them know what that line is worth. For it matters not how much we own, the cars, the house, the cash, what matters is how we live and love and how we spend our dash. So think about this long and hard. Are there things you'd like to change? For you never know how much time is left that can still be rearranged. If we could just slow down enough to consider what's true and real and always try to understand the way other people feel, to be less quick to anger, to show appreciation more, and love the people in our lives like we've never loved before. To treat each other with respect and more often wear a smile, remembering that this special dash might only last a little while. So when your eulogy is being read with your life actions to rehash, would you be proud of the things they say about how you spent your dash? That's pretty profound. That's exactly what Solomon is saying when he says the day of death is better than the day of one's birth. And then he goes on. He doesn't stop there. He said, this is odd. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. 
for that is the end of all men, and the living will lay it to his heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by the sadness of the countenance, the heart is made better. He says two things here. Number one, we don't like this, but it's true. Attending a funeral is better for you than attending a party. Why? Because it makes you think about what really matters. It makes you think about life and not just living day to day. And then he says, sorrow is better than laughter. It has a refining influence on us. It's like that old song. And I, I man, I felt the presence of God so precious in this service tonight. I'm in danger of singing like a hundred old songs. But it's like that old song, some through the water, some through the flood, some through the fire, but all through the blood. Some go through great sorrow, but our God gives a song in the night season and all the day long. Sorrow is many times better for us than laughter because God draws close and we draw close to him. He says this, it's better. Everyone say better. He's making comparisons in chapter seven. It's better to hear the rebuke of the wise than for a man to hear the song of fools. The rebuke of a wise person in your life, the rebuke of a mentor, a spiritual leader, the rebuke of maybe your parent if you're young, uh, the rebuke of someone wise is better than the flattery of fools. He says better is the end of a thing than the beginning thereof. And better is the patient in spirit. They are better than the proud in spirit. What are you saying, Solomon? For all of you people, <laughs> oh, this might be somebody's word tonight. Finishing one job, Solomon said, is better than starting many jobs. Oh, I'd like to preach that a while. Finishing one job, just finish it. Stop starting everything and leaving it for the rest of us to clean up your mess. Finish one job. Somebody say amen. amen. Makes me feel good. You may be mad. It says being patient with others is better than proudly demanding our own way. Oh, and then there's this one because of this particular group on this night, we're the oldest group that's gathering here on campus tonight. So here's a scripture for us in verse 10. Say not thou, what is the cause that the former days were better than these? For thou dost not inquire wisely concerning this. Solomon says, today is better than the good old days. I know we love the good old days. I know we get, because I'm like you, I'm as old as most of you. I know we get a quiver in our liver when we hear some of those old things and we talk about the good old days. But Solomon said, don't say that. Why were the good old days better than today? You just discourage everybody, including yourself, when you say that. Stop saying the good old days are better. You know what's better? Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day I've got to serve God. This is the day that the Lord has made. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. I might like some things better from the old days and some things better from today. I really enjoy a cell phone, internet, airplanes. Camel would have been hard on me. It just wouldn't have worked. It just wouldn't have worked. <laughs> Where's Pastor Raymond? Well, the last. Oh, dear. <laughs> the last we saw 
His camel. Oh, dear. I think it's just about time to finish Bible study. <laughs> the joy of the Lord is your strength. And the foolishness of Pastor Raymond is sometimes your strength too. Solomon said, stop pining away for things. Live and enjoy and love today. It's a wonderful day. God gave us this day. So, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. But if you have a day of adversity, consider this. God also has set one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. Solomon said, on a good day, enjoy yourself. On a bad day, examine yourself. And know this, God sends us both kinds of days. Why? So we will know that life is uncertain and so we'll never take anything for granted. So it's all good. Now, here, here's a great set of verses. Be not righteous over much, neither make thyself overwise. Why should thou destroy thyself? Be not over much wicked, neither be thou foolish. Why shouldest thou die before thy time? I know this all King James tongue twister. It is good that thou shouldest take hold on this. Yea, also from this withdraw not thine hand, for he that feareth God shall come forth of them all, of these options. Let me just give you his down-to-earth advice. Don't be over-righteous. Some of you already got that down. Uh, don't be over-wise. Some of you, you've aced that. Don't be over-wicked and don't be over-foolish. Let me translate. Don't be, over, don't be super spiritual. Don't be conceited about your wisdom. Don't be carnal and don't be careless. That's really what he just said. Don't be one of those people that's super hyper-spiritual all the time. Can I just speak as a, a pastor and say, those people drive me nuts. Hyper-super-spiritual. You know, Gabriel and Michael, all the archangels had coffee this morning in their living room. And then they just decided to honor us with their presence tonight. They are so hyper-super-spiritual. They got more dreams and visions and words. And it's just like, could you be normal? Just try one service, just normal. Just normal, it would help. Help me. Don't be super spiritual, don't be conceited, don't be proud of yourself, don't be carnal, and don't be careless. He that feareth God shall come forth of them all. The one who honors God, the one who fears God, will avoid all those harmful extremes because that's what they are. Don't go to one extreme or the other. Just live for God. I have threatened for years now, I've never got to it, to preach a Shakespearean sermon. Just one phrase, consistency, thou art a jewel. Just be consistent. Not sky high one day and in the doldrums the next day, just be be consistent, just love Jesus, just love his church. And Solomon would say, and just love your life. It may not be perfect, but it's the only life you've got, so just enjoy it. A couple more verses and we're done. Verse 20, for there is not a just man upon earth that doeth good and sinneth not. Nobody's perfect, so don't you get arrogant. 
We are all guilty of two things. He says, there's, uh, there's no just man on earth that does good all the time. There's no just man on earth that sins not. We are all guilty of sins of omission, things that we don't do or we forget to do. And we're all guilty of sins of commission. So the sins of omission, there's nobody that does good all the time. You forget, you get slack, you get lazy, and so that's your sin of omission. And also, there's no just man on earth that, that sinneth not. Those are sins of commission, that, sins that we commit. We, we do wrong things, and maybe we knew, and we have to repent. And so Solomon says, um, you know, enjoy your life, but don't get too proud of yourself because you're not perfect. And you need to just fear God and serve God. And he closes the chapter with this. Lo, this only have I found. Out of all of this that I've been telling you, this is what I've learned, this is what I've found. That God, he made man upright. But they have sought out many inventions. God didn't create us to be sinners. He created us to be saints. He didn't create you to be an addict. He created you to be apostolic. He didn't create you to be bowed down with guilt and shame. He created you to stand upright. That's what he says here. God has made man upright. The word upright means innocent. God created you to live in beautiful innocence, not all ensnared in all the trash and junk and sin of the world. But the problem is that we undid that. We created schemes or inventions. We tried to get around God's commandments from the Garden of Eden up till today. And so we need to pray what Solomon's father David prayed one day when his scheme to cover his sin, when that scheme was uncovered. And he prayed something and God acted on this prayer and David was called in both the Old and the New Testament a man after God's own heart. And here's what David prayed when God created him with a good life. God gave him every blessing and then David ended up messing it up and sinning because he schemed to try to get away with sin. Here's what David prayed. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. And that's what I'd like to leave you with at the end of Bible study tonight, because wherever you happen to be in life right now, life can be hard sometimes. Life can be tough sometimes. Life can be confusing sometimes. Sometimes you feel the rush of the presence of God, and sometimes you feel very little. Sometimes you pray, and it seems God's right there, and other times you pray, and it seems like God's not even paying attention. Sometimes, you feel like it's the greatest day you've ever lived. And other times you just feel like you wish you could die. But whatever's going on in your life, hard, ugly, difficult, sad, tragic, Solomon would tell you, look for the little piece of joy in that day. And he would also tell you, try to figure out what God is trying to teach you in that day. And when you figure it out, embrace it. And more than likely, a lot of the time, God's trying to teach us exactly that. Create in me a clean heart, God. 
Renew a right spirit in me. Would you stand to your feet? Let your hands keep on going and then let your voice keep on going and just lift up one more prayer to the Lord at the end of Bible study tonight. I'm so grateful for the Lord and for his word. I just want to hear the saints of God pray for a minute because there's strength in that prayer. It might not even be that you need that strength right now. Maybe this is the greatest day you've had so far this year, but somebody else may need strength. Somebody else may need a word and they draw that strength from the prayers of the people of God. Jesus, I thank you for your word that is forever settled, forever established. It never changes. Not one jot or tittle will pass away from your inspired, anointed word. It's all good because it's all from God. Jesus, speak a word into somebody's life today. Something from a song. Something from this Bible study. Something from our prayer time. Something from a conversation. Speak a word. Speak, O oh Lord for your servants are listening we're hearing you, we're listening our eyes are fixed on you and our ear is attuned to you and we want to hear your voice give us this day our daily bread, a word that speaks into the deep of our spirit I pray in Jesus name in Jesus name in Jesus name now intentionally turn that prayer into a great praise and that's how we'll finish tonight. Not, not a temporary, momentary, two-second praise. Turn that prayer into a praise and just lift it up to the Lord. This is the day that he gave me. I'm going to rejoice and be glad in it. It might not be all happy and easy, but I got something where I can find some joy, and I'm going to focus on that, and I'm going to rejoice in the God of my salvation. On the worst day of my life, he still is on the throne. He still runs the universe. He still is the victor. Oh, yes, yes, yes. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, God. Thank you, God. Oh, my. Thank you, Jesus. Are you grateful for the word of the Lord? Huh. Ooh.